Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. An ever-growing number of people are being treated for mental illness. We know that for a fact. A lot of us blame that on the modern world. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers debate whether we're living in a mad world. But critics warn that psychiatrists, possibly in cahoots with Big Pharma, have got an interest in describing normal, perhaps even fundamental aspects of human behaviour as an illness or a condition or a disorder. Should we then be sceptical of the ever-growing number of people being diagnosed with mental illnesses? Do we need a conceptual revolution in what we mean by mental illness? Or would doing this consign the very sick to a life of misery? Taking this on, we have Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Sheffield and author of Madness Explained, Richard Bentle. He'll be joined by Professor in Public Health and Psychiatry at Swansea University Medical School and Chair of the National Advisory Group to the Welsh Government on the Prevention of Suicide and Self-Harm, Anne John. And finally, former clinical psychologist and author of a straight-talking introduction to psychiatric diagnosis, Lucy Johnston. Thanks for listening, and once you've finished today's episode, please do make sure you're subscribed at whichever podcast platform you listen to the podcast on, and do check out our website at www.iitv for our podcast playlist curated just for you and our most recent episodes. Back now to Mark Salter, who hosts this week's episode. Is the modern world making us ill? Or are we medicalising normality? Richard, can we start with you? From the moment you wake up in the morning to the point when you go to sleep at night and possibly beyond because sleep affects your mental health, you are swimming in the causes of mental health and ill health. In terms of your relationships with other people, the social and economic environment you live in and so on. And these are very powerful determinants of mental health. And we shouldn't think of mental health as either having a mental illness or not. We should think of continua between mental health and mental illness, and those social factors knock you along or back and forth along the continuum. So where we draw the line between health and illness is to some extent arbitrary, although we shouldn't, that shouldn't worry us all that much because that's true of a lot of physical illnesses like hypertension as well. But what we should be wary of is seeing these phenomena as largely medical phenomena which require medical intervention rather than responses to a world which is challenging and difficult to live in and difficult to navigate our way through. And we should think about how we can change the world in order to make it that we are lower down that continuum more towards the, the side of healthy functioning and able to live our lives you know, in a fulfilling way. Thank you. Lucy. Okay, I think the problem is that this is going to be less of a battle than a love-in, as we were saying <laughs> earlier, because actually we come from rather similar positions. But, I mean, just to expand a bit on what Richard has said, which I do agree with, there's quite a lot of evidence that something about modern Western industrialised societies is making us more, and I wouldn't use the word mental illness, is making us more miserable and unhappy in a way that expresses itself in all sorts of different ways. 
And of course, people have always been mad or distressed, but you know, we haven't always had this rising epidemic of what I would not call mental illness. And part of this, I think, along with a genuine increase in distress, is also a process of us being encouraged to medicalise things that certainly would be seen as normal aspects of everyday life you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. We could all think of examples of that. But essentially, I think we're living in an increasingly individualistic and materialistic and competitive and fragmented society. And that is not good for all of us, for any of us. It's not healthy for any of us. Where I would differ a bit from Richard is I'm very picky about language. I would not call this mental illness. We're not dealing with people, patients with illnesses, but people with problems. People who at some level are responding in an understandable way to a huge range of social pressures and relationship difficulties and social norms and expectations which have really become almost crippling for many of us. And actually, despite all the well-meaning anti-stiba campaigns and so on, and there's something to support there, we are not going to tackle this so-called epidemic of so-called mental illness until we really make an effort to live in a just, a fair, a more equal society. And what's your take? So the world I work in is bringing together the, the biological reasons, the social reasons and the psychological reasons. So I think on that front, even though I'm medical, we're very much on a similar page. But I guess it's about why do we feel like there might be an epidemic? They do big surveys and these big surveys can, can say who has an actual diagnosis, who meets the threshold for anxiety and depression. There has been a slight increase in anxiety and depression, but it's not huge. And it's mainly in older adolescent girls. But what has changed dramatically, the people is about people knowing that they're unwell. So it used to be that you might meet the criteria for anxiety and depression, but you wouldn't know it. So if someone said, are you depressed? You'd go, no and you wouldn't seek help. What's happening now is that people are much more aware when they might be hitting those thresholds. And, and when they hit those thresholds, they're more likely to seek help. Still, the people who hit those thresholds, there's only less than half of people with diagnosable common mental disorders ask for help. But our mental health systems are chronically underfunded and have been for years and we can't meet that growing awareness and I think that gives people a sense of an epidemic. The modern life has changed so the areas that I do research in particularly are young people's mental health and suicide and self-harm prevention and so I always get asked about social media, about individuals, about how rapidly our world is changing. Change brings discomfort brings sometimes a sense of moral panic. I noticed that Anne used the terms threshold for anxiety and depression as though they were things. We obviously warned about the dangers of language. But what I'd like to do then is come down to another word, biological. Is all illness biological? M mental illness, some physical illness come to that. I think both physical and uh, mental illness are hugely impacted by people's social circumstances. So I come from a public health background. I think poverty plays a huge impact. Certainly people who have, um, who, who would think of themselves or services might think of them as having mental illness, they definitely experience um, what we might term biological symptoms. They feel unwell. 
Um, however, to change people's social circumstances often requires political will. I think that's why sometimes we focus very much on, on the medical model, because that's something that people can do something about. Whereas some of these broader social aspects are much more complicated to impact. You may have biological predispositions, but social causation, I come from public health and primary care. I think, you know, substance misuse, poverty, those are the things that have a real impact on people's mental health. Richard, what's your take on that? So to, to answer the question, yes, it's biological because everything's biological. Every time you think, something happens in your brain. And one of the things which has changed in my career is our ability to, to see those things because we have neuroimaging techniques. If you look at the brains of people who are diagnosed with psychiatric disorder, it's definitive. The brains are functioning in a different way. There's no question about that. It's complicated because there's different ways for different types of problems and so on. The problem is how we think about that. The temptation has always been to say, well, you know, we've got something funny going on in the brain scanner. That means it's a biological illness. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. What we also know is that life experience changes the way the brain functions. I think, to, without a shadow of a doubt, that childhood abuse is causal. Uh, it's a big word, cause, but I'm prepared to use it in this circumstances. Is causal in adult psychiatric disorders. And it plays a role in the type of most severe disorders, which I'm interested in, which would call the psychosis. I don't think there's any question about that. We also know from brain scanning studies that children who are sexually abused, that their brains develop in subtly different ways. So for example, the hippocampus, which is a neuroregion region in the center of the brain, tends to be smaller. And what's going on is the brain is responding to events in the world. And so where do we say is the cause of the mental illness. I'd say it's the events in the world, and the brain is a kind of what we'd say is a mediator. It's just kind of what's, what's part of the pathway. You want to say something, yeah? So I think the only difficulty I have with that, so I think what you're saying is completely right. So that sort of childhood trauma, whether it's abuse or neglect, mm -hmm. um, has a huge impact. But, but the one thing that we do know is that one risk factor plus another does not equal illness. Okay. So, so, so I think that's where I move slightly away from causal. Right, so, so here you but are saying category. A, but then we need a different understanding of what we mean by cause in what I wouldn't call mental illness. Because Can you help us then? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> because obviously it's not the case that tragically this person was sexually abused, they're going to end up with something that we might call schizophrenia 20 years down the line. In a very general sense, there might be an increased likelihood that that happens. But because we are agentic human beings who make sense and meaning of our lives, we can never employ that kind of cause-effect thinking to what I wouldn't call mental illness, what I would call misery and distress, because we make meaning of our experiences. So it's perfectly possible to make very different meanings, of course, from different events, depending on all sorts of things that we know about, like were you able to confide in someone? Did someone believe you? Did someone protect you? Were there other good adults adults but, in your life and so Lucy, on. But Lucy, you've heard your colleagues here saying that's all happens in the the brain, the amygdala perhaps. Surely that's biology. Well, are you right? as Richard said, everything is biology. Yeah. I'm only sitting here because I've inherited a brain to talk and feet to get me here and a tongue to help me articulate things. But I don't, I hope you wouldn't say that the words I'm using are the symptoms of a mental illness. Maybe you would. But... <laughs> So it depends how we think about the role of biology. Do we think about it in some primary causal sense, such that it makes sense, like, you know, the body isn't producing insulin, therefore I have diabetes, 
or do we say that our bodily experience mediates and enables every aspect of thoughts, feelings and behaviour, which it obviously does. So one of the more encouraging developments in the last you know, 10, 20 years has been the trauma-informed approach, which may be familiar to people here. But in essence, this is a growing body of knowledge, which the two of you have both referred to, which looks at the impact of psychosocial events on people's brains and bodies. This is a hugely exciting body of work and it involves sometimes working with people's bodies in the sense of helping people to get better control over their automatic reactions, their fight, fly, three, fight, Listen, flight, flees reactions. Before we come to that, do you mind if we just come back to the biology and just slay a few more biological dragons or try to if we can? Not, not all of them though. Well, not all of them. No, you very clearly said, you've admitted that everything resides in the body and the mind is an organ in the brain and the brain is in the body. Yeah, but what is it they think that has caused this relentless focus on biological as opposed to psychological and social research. Why have your careers been such struggles against the guys who are, you know, waving rat petri dishes in the air and looking at chemicals? I, you know, I don't know if I have a straight answer to that. Some people would say it's the dominant role of medicine in uh, mental health. I, I think there's some truth in that, actually. But also, I think, you know, Why? biological stories are... Well, we're all human beings. Yeah, yeah. Why but, should we be biologically focused? But... Uh, you know, but also this biological stories are easy to tell. And it just seems to me, I mean, this drives me mad, so I'll just get out here, that any old bullshit discovered by a geneticist can get into the, 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 front, the, front page, the front pages of The Guardian or The Independent or whatever. And I, I actually have very, very, you know, I've got slides which I show to students of examples of things which, when you drill down, they are bullshit. There's no question about it. Uh, and, and this really worries me. I think there is a problem with the way that science gets translated into public knowledge. And the media plays a bad role in this, but not only the media, scientists play the bad role there. So I was talking earlier on to Anne about a press release from Cardiff University a few years ago which said scientists at Cardiff University had discovered the Rosetta Stone gene for schizophrenia. That's what it said, the Rosetta Stone gene for schizophrenia. This was, excuse my language, a fucking mouse study. <laughs> you know? So, and it's that sort of thing, which I think is just outrageous, frankly. They're taken up uncritically. And, you know, one other aspect about this is grant funding. People's academic careers is, to a large extent, depends on grant funding. Um, you can, um, and, and this has been a struggle for me, trying to get grant funding for the research in social science and mental health. Geneticists, they don't have any problem with grant funding. So, and these big press releases help to ensure that that's the case. So I think historically, a lot of the research into mental illness was in, was, was in medicine. So it was even psychotherapists were medics. And so it's developed on this, this science medicine paradigm. I would say things are getting a lot better. So for someone like me who focuses on the social, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been working with geneticists. And now we all work very much more closely, bringing those models together. So I think things are changing. I think the thing about funding is really true. And the journals that you can get genetic type research into are always higher impact. But I think the other side of that is the way we develop science. So a recent story is there was a gene for depression. Journals, like newspapers, want to publish new things, exciting things. So very rarely do they publish things that find nothing hmm. or are repeating studies to see if they're true. And so what they found with this depression gene was that there had been 
30 years of research on this gene. And now, because we can do big gene studies, now, 30 years later, we found out that it doesn't mean anything. But do you think big data is necessarily going to render you immune to the danger of bullshit headlines like you're talking about? It's, no. It, 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 <laughs> it kind of depends what you think psychiatry is for, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And by psychiatry, I don't mean psychiatrists as such, as a profession. What is the mental health industry for? And it's an industry, let's not be any doubt about that, and it's getting bigger. And I think in some ways it's getting worse, actually. But in what it, way? Um, well, because medicalisation, as we've already said, is spreading into every aspect mm. of our lives. And while it's good to see a greater emphasis on social factors, I do worry that some of this is part of a strategy, in a sense. We take on a little bit of this and we add on the sort of thin layer of icing on the cake about, of course, if you live in poverty, you're probably more, more likely to feel pretty, pretty fucking miserable if we're allowed to swear today, which it looks like we are. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, this allows the whole bandwagon to continue. And I feel that I'm going to mention a word we said we wouldn't mention. I feel that possibly like Brexit, things may have to get worse before they get better. But actually, also like Brexit, we need to abandon the whole project. We need to start from somewhere fundamentally different. But so, don't, get, don't get Richard on Brexit. So all my patients, so we abandon the whole project and all of our patients with chronic schizophrenia shiver in shop doorways. Well, is that the luckily idea? there's no such thing as chronic schizophrenia, Mark. OK, all the patients with disabling disorganisation of the uh, attributional bias all process. Your home, all, your, all your homeless patients get houses okay. and they'll all be a lot happier. Okay, so, so can, can I just say something here? I think it's really important to say this because even though I'm quite critical of psychiatry and clinical psychiatry, I'm not as critical as, as Lucy, I would say that the reality is that there are psychiatric clinics up and down the country where there are really hard-working psychiatrists and psychologists who are trying to do their very best to help people who have quite serious difficulties and often working with tools which are not particularly effective and which they know are not particularly effective, but hey, you know what, they haven't got any better tools. And also under very limited resources and under pressure of time. These are people who are trying to be the front line against you know, the most profound forms of misery which people experience. The problem is that what they have available to them are not very effective in reality. And that's why I think the public health approach is so important, because if we could shift to trying to do something about the causes of mental ill health, then there will be less people requiring help of these poor, overworked mental health professionals. And, you know, and if you want to do something about the causes of mental health, looking at genes is a complete waste of time. Yep. It's not going to get you I agree with that. agree and with that. However, what I, I mean, the slightly dirty word in this whole conversation is diagnosis. And I think diagnosis, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to put it out there. The thing about diagnosis is that it gives people a common language. Now, there are problems with diagnosis. We know that the way that the DSM criteria are set up are deeply flawed. It's by committee. Um, people's sponsorship are questionable but but there is a use for diagnosis and some people you know in terms of accessing services in terms of people being able to communicate with each other I think what we sometimes lose in medicine or the the scientific model is the idea that as important a is the way people function in their lives and their context so a diagnosis of depression, if you are in a loving family with lots of money to get resources to help you, is that experience of depression is very different to if you are 
living in a very chaotic, deprived environment. So, so I think I think diagnosis is important. I don't think we should lose, you know, the baby with the bathwater type expression. But I think function and context are really, really as important. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Lucy, diagnosis is important. Oh, it's a red rag to a bull, it is. It's a red rag to a bull. I mean, should we be abandoning the diagnostic model and would that improve outcomes? Obviously we should and obviously it would. <laughs> so it's kind of a simple answer, but we kind of know this in a way. So, I mean, I do admit and agree that in our current world and system, there are some purely practical administrative purposes for diagnosis and I it is not my belief we should go around te tearing labels off people and people will need their labels some practical purposes while we're in the middle of what I think we are in the middle of in a rather cliched term a paradigm shift where we actually are going to recognize that something that we know already our diagnostic model of mental distress actually does not work I mean recovery figures are quite hard to get from psychiatric services but on the whole there seems to be fairly good evidence that the more Western medicine you impose very often on cultures and countries that didn't have it the more disability rates rise the more drugs you pump into any given country the more the rates of apparent mental illness rise in parallel and I'm not saying that we have nothing to offer I'm not saying that drugs should never be used but we have a failed model a failing model and a model that not only isn't helping is actually damaging people and when you get to the point where even the people who draw up the DSM manuals are saying things like, you simply can't define a mental disorder, it's bullshit, as Professor Alan Francis said, the chair of the DSM-4 committee, well, I begin to think, why can't I say it's bullshit too? Why can't we all say it's bullshit? We do have alternatives. We need to be looking at people's lives, people's stories, and the circumstances of their lives. And if we look at some of the people who managed to escape psychiatry, as I think they would say, put it, and who often define themselves as survivors, there's very often a turning point where they decided not to define themselves as mentally ill. They decided to drop that identity. They decided to understand what had led them to that appearance of distress, and they were actually able to move forward. But with, as an alternative, we've already heard the possibility of you know, possibly getting more big data, but also doing things about unfairness, child sex abuse, poverty and homelessness. You know, that's a little bit, let's make the world a happy place. Is that re-achievable? I mean, let's look at the last 3,000 years. Are you guys realistic in this revolution? How are you going to do it? Let's give up now. Let's get on with it, right? <laughs> let's talk about okay. it. So, first of all, just to respond a little bit to what Lucy said. Um, we do need to be able to describe the problems which we see but, in the But not in diagnostic okay. terms. So, or any you know, terms. I, I just, I, I think now things have changed since I wrote my first paper critical of the diagnostic system in, believe it or not, 1988. People didn't even have mobile phones at the time. That's how long ago it was. Since then, things have changed quite a lot. There is widespread recognition that the diagnostic systems which we have available 
are not fit for purpose and there's lots of research going on at the moment, I'm involved in some of it, which is trying to find different ways and more meaningful ways of trying to categorize these problems. And you have to categorize them for some reasons. You have to categorize them if you're a public health person because you want to count them to know whether you know, things are getting worse or better. And you have to categorize them if you're a researcher like me because you have to know what you're researching and so on. So one of the interesting things which has emerged is that what might work for, if you're a public health person might not be what's the best thing if you're a researcher. So the idea of we have one classification system which actually works for everybody for all purposes is probably a myth. We need to pick and choose for whatever purpose you want. Describing things is always for the purpose, for a purpose, for somebody's purpose. So we need to be flexible in thinking about these things, but I'm, I'm not convinced that we can get rid of any kind of descriptive system altogether. No, but that's a different point. We don't need a diagnostic descriptive system because right. actually human emotional suffering strict doesn't come sure. in neat yeah. parcels. Human no, emotional suffering does You're not right come in neat parcels. Um. So I'm going to go a bit medical now. Part of the problem I sometimes have when with, with these conversations is that in my world, we're fighting for parity of esteem between mental and physical health in terms of funding and services for research and people. And sometimes we're almost arguing ourselves out of the fact that we should be looking at these things with parity and equally as things, you know, physical and mental health, mental illness cause the, the same amount of difficulty and disability in people's lives. And for years that has not been recognised in the health service. And so one of, you know, my, I came from a very general background um, where I was a GP doing, you know, diabetes one second, seeing someone with a, who, who were having problems in their lives with their emotional lives the next. But the thing that always struck me was that I would sit in a, conf a public health conference or a diabetes <laughs> conference or a, or a heart disease conference and everyone would go, we need more professionals. We need more people to be managing this. We need more people around it. Mental health is the one place where people go, we need less people. But we know it's been chronically underfunded. So there was a report that came out last year in children and young people. You know, most people who need help don't get it. You know, there's a few people that do. It's not always the people that need it. We've got a thing called the inverse care law. So he who talks the, the loudest in the language of the people providing help is the most likely to get help. People with complex needs don't get it. There's a whole bunch of people in the middle. And what they found was, is that if we were going to meet the need of the people whose needs weren't being met, we were going to need 150,000 new mental health professionals. That's how chronically underfunded this system is. But, but doesn't this really highlight our first point, what a crazy world we're living in? I mean, how long do we go along this trajectory calling for more money, more services, more resources, more mental health research, until every single person in the country is on a clinic waiting list? and every single person has their personal prescription. You know, we really need to think much more, you know, I know you're also saying this, about the bigger picture. I
do tend to feel a bit despondent and you know I like to say provocative things occasionally but I sort of mean them I sometimes feel like saying can we have less money for mental health please I mean it's a rather paradoxical thing to say but actually we don't want more of the same more of not we've got what we've got is not working. If it was working, the, the waiting list would be smaller. So you're saying bring on the revolution. Well, the, we need a conceptual revolution. Yeah. We need a conceptual, we need a revolution in the way we think about human emotional suffering and distress. Right. So you want a hard exit from medicine. <laughs> I, do. I do. I want the, the hardest out. I want the hardest exit possible. I want us to crash out yeah. of the current system. You want the M20 to be full of people with mental illness, yes, stretching as far yes. as Dover. And yeah. I don't want to go down as a Theresa May who failed to deliver it. <laughs> I'm going to be the person who delivers it. Can I just put all three of you a question? 60% of people walking through the doors of general practitioners, their physical doctors, have got nothing wrong with them physically in terms of bodily dysfunction. What are you going to do about that? GPs are spread all across the land. They're the best people. They are the true psychiatrists, psychotherapists, occupational therapists, and so, social workers of this world. So GPs are the yeah, people who generally prescribe antidepressants, for example. It's not they, generally They generally look after most mental illness, yeah, don't they? Yeah, You're a GP. Yeah, so... What? Well, please forgive me. I just... I think we need to be... I think we need to be inventive about, uh, about this and try other things. I agree with Lucy. You know, just doing the same thing over and over again when it hasn't worked particularly well is just not smart. It never was smart. So what else could we do? Well, why do people come through the door to the GP? Very often, they don't come through the door with depression. They come through the door depressed about something. And what's the something? Well, here's something which a lot of people are depressed about, debt, okay? Debt is a major driver of mental ill health. Who would have known it? Who would have thought of that, eh? That if you're massively in debt, then you're likely to be depressed and anxious. Debt counseling, you know, maybe some of these people might do better. And there are studies which are trying to look yeah. at this. Right. You know, it's, it's, people have, I'll think about this now, but that's the sort of thing. We should think about addressing some of the issues. People have housing problems and things like that. Get Not housing. everybody needs to be see a psychotherapist or a, or a pharmacologist. In order to... I would completely agree with you. We call it social prescribing. It is, mm. it is about looking at things differently, about, you know, being in green spaces, allotments, debt counselling, um, and all that is great. But what's happening at the moment is that we've got, we can do that work. To see the fruition of that is going to take decades. True. And while that's happening, there are still people in very acute need. And what, the way we're currently working, when we have these sorts of debates, and I know we, we do it for these sorts of for these sorts of events, but the reality is, is we shouldn't be pitching the people working in what we call um, prevention of mental health issues and people dealing with acute problems. Because if you pitch them in an underfunded system where they're all vying, so the people working at the acute end feel like all the money's going into uh, the funding of services for people who haven't hit that level, that creates a very dysfunctional system. And I think that's where that chronic underfunding has really impacted on what we were seeing. So I think there, there is a continuum. Some people do need the sort of um, psychiatric help that, that we're talking about. Other people, we might get there faster. And that's where, so it's three quarters of what we would term mental illness in the future will present itself before people are 24 years old. That's three quarters. So we should be doing loads, early years, parenting, schools. When you said, what can we do? 
there's actually really good randomized controlled trial evidence. So that's like the top, top of the tree evidence. Um, that whole school approaches to preventing sexual abuse and promoting behaviours, anti-bullying. Bullying is huge for mental health. Mm. Mm. Um, we have trial evidence that, that we can prevent those things. Could I ask then, mm. Lucy, how does what Anne's suggesting fit with your you know, proposed gentle revolution? <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Anne. Of course I do. I think we all agree with that. I mean, the, the trouble is that alongside all this really important preventative stuff, is a lot of stuff that I think is actually quite unhelpful because at the same time there are programs in schools being rolled out which are actually encouraging people to identify themselves as having a mental illness even earlier. You know, there are, you know that is not a good thing. So there's two things going on at the same time. But our proposed revolution, the conceptual revolution we need, the dawning recognition that we're dealing with people with problems, not patients with illnesses, would place at a in a much more central role all the things you're talking about. You know, anti-bullying campaigns and support with debt and housing and living in, you know, the single best thing we can do to reduce rates of distress is to live in an economically fairer or more equal society. There's loads of data to support that. All of these things will remain kind of fringe or sort of on the sides or, oh yes, but in addition, we have to deal with the mental illnesses unless we really have a fundamentally different way of thinking about distress. We really need to be, make that big leap, but it's a I'm always a bit surprised and shocked how difficult it is to actually make that leap rather than half make it. And in fact, I was talking to uh, the speaker's dinner last night, three philosophers, I don't know if they're in the room. If so, I apologise for being so argumentative, but I have got an argumentativeness gene and I was... <laughs> I was had a bit to drink and I was probably a bit of a pain in the backside, to be honest. But I mean, they just sat there, philosophers, saying to me things like, but, but what about people who think they're Napoleon going around with axes and what about the chemical imbalances? Can, can I just add something? Which is, which is uh, you know, um, I agree with Anne completely uh, that it's not, it shouldn't be a competition between preventative services and uh, services for people who are already affected by mental ill health. So, um, and I also agree, obviously, that both need much more funding. Abs there's no, absolutely no question about it. But also, we, need, we do need to think about how we deliver those services to people who are, you know, are already suffering quite severe symptoms. The symptoms which I'm in, you know, have been researching in my life, like paranoia and hallucinations. These are not trivial things. And not um, mental illnesses either, Richard. Okay. Well, but if you go on a lot of psychiatric wards, what do you see? Well, you know, what you see is actually nothing. You see people sitting around. You see people watching the television. You see nurses in the nursing station who are kind of perhaps overstretched themselves, but just sort of surveying what's going on through a window. You don't see anything human going on, generally speaking. You don't see much in, in the way of interaction. I don't think, in my experience, I'm not the, you know, but I'm sure it varies from place to place, but certainly, and actually it's worse in other places. I was on a psychiatric ward in Philadelphia only a couple of years ago. Jesus, you wouldn't want to leave your dog there. But I mean, um, it is, there's a lack of basic quality human interaction and relationships. One of the things we do know, and there's a lot of research to do this, and I've done a little bit myself, but loads of people have done research on this, is the quality of the relationships between the provider of healthcare and the recipient is actually as big a determinant of what, whether somebody heals or feels better than any kind of technology. So, you know, we, 
I spent a lot of my time developing, working in the development of cognitive behavioral therapy for people with psychosis. But, it, but guess what? It turns out that the quality of the relationship between the therapist and the patient appears to be, and I'm going to use this word again, causal. We've actually done a kind of study to address that very issue. It appears to be causal in determining whether the patient responds well to therapy. But if you go on to a lot of psychiatric units, inpatient units, there isn't any relationship going on. And I think there's a, a kind of, we just need to make people think differently. And kindness is a kind of basic quality, which... So kindness is an antidepressant. What yeah, do we take well, on this idea? Well, yeah, absolutely. And the trouble is that things like human interactions, you know, how do you heal human distress, very often caused by other human beings behaving very harshly and unkindly and abusively to you. You heal it through human contact, which enables you to develop different kinds of relationships with other people and with yourselves. And with yourself. And this is bound to be marginalised in the medicalised system where we actually kid ourselves that we're primarily dealing with some kind of version of a medical illness, even though no one's ever demonstrated that to be the case. One of the most amazing things about it, when you think about it, you just have to think about it at a common sense level. If you talk to people who've been admitted to psychiatric hospital and they come out afterwards and you ask them, what was it like? Very often they say, God, it was frightening on that ward. Uh, you know, I was worried that somebody would assault me or something like that. It's not uncommon to hear that sort of No, but typically comment. they also say, but the person who really helped me was the cleaner. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. she sat down and she typical? chatted to me. And in your experience yeah. as a doctor, it's the cleaner that does the work? <laughs> the, the psychiatric healing? I find that hard to believe, but... The, the, um, the uh, and what's your take as a doctor? The ordinary human contact. So I'd say two things. I'd say the, thing, the analogy about uh, inpatient experiences... I think equally applies to when you get admitted to a general hospital. You know, those. Well, I've been admitted to a general hospital. I have to tell you, that's not my experience, actually. Yeah, and I would also well, say I there's something legitimate medical going on in a general hospital, which there isn't in a psychiatric hospital. Fight and talk. So, what I would say is therapeutic conversations between people are, of course, going to help. And most of the evidence about um, counselling is based on whether you have that transference to the counsellor is one of the biggest predictors of whether it will work or not. <laughs> However, there are um, issues about keeping people safe. And you can create environments where you can keep people safe. You know, one of the things, one of the issues that in my world is that uh, young people can be in mental health services and then the minute they hit 18, where the criteria for adult services become very different, it, it goes from um, things like autism and autistic spectrum disorder to, to either being either at very serious risk to yourself or others or having uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And then those kids are lost to any help or support. And, you know, they, basically they fall through the gaps of transition in services. And you see their trajectories and outcomes fall. You know, mental health services are not just about doctors. Being in hospital, whatever sort of hospital, is about, you know, the cleaner, the pharmacist, the, the nurse. And you, any one of those people may provide that therapeutic conversation. It's the same in schools. It's having a whole school approach. Just, just kind of, this is w way out of date, but it's a, a, a fascinating study. Somebody I know carried out a study in a big psychiatric hospital back at the, I was probably in the 90s, something like that, and they actually asked the patients who, who did they find the most therapeutic about all the different professionals they met. 
The answer was the hairdresser. Yeah, so... Not the cleaner. Not the cleaner. It was the hairdresser. Right. But, uh, you know, so, so... More change, more money, more funding, and more cleaners and hairdressers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Rich Bentle, and John, and Lucy Johnston. For more on today's topic, why not listen to Minds, Madness and Medicine, another episode of Flossy for Our Times which explores the realm of mental illness and asks whether neuroscience might offer a more effective treatment to illnesses today. And of course, please do make sure you're subscribed and head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate this as it helps other people find the podcast. Tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. 